It's, uh, it's an awesome and amazing and a humbling opportunity I have this morning to come and to be able to pre- preach God's word to God's people. I um, absolutely relish this opportunity. And so, I mean, where else in the world would we be right now? I mean, we get to be in the presence of God and we get to hear from the word of God. So that's amazing. And uh, Pastor Tanner, our pastor, wrapped up for us last week in the book of Proverbs. And so this week we're starting a new journey together, a five-week series through this acronym called TULIP, or as it's called here on the screen, the Doctrines of Grace. Uh, James Boyce said this about these doctrines. He said, we might describe these doctrines as reformational rather than Calvinistic. Uh, And the reason why he said that is this, at least the reason why I believe he said that is this, is because we're not following a man. We're not even following men, but we're following the man. We're following the word of God. And these are the doctrines of grace. It is my hope and my prayer this morning that as we get into uh, this tea, total depravity, a, a doctrine that many in our world might say is a pill that's hard to swallow. But as we get into this this morning, it is my hope that we would see the grace and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for us in this and in all of these doctrines over the next five weeks. Um, So I'm going to read, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans 3. We're going to be all over the Bible really this morning because uh, we're going to be defining and defending and talking about the difference this doctrine makes. And so we're going to be really all over the Bible this morning, but we're going to start here in Romans 3. I'm going to read it, then we'll pray, and then we're going to just jump right on in. Uh, Romans 3, starting in verse 10, says this, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Pray with me. Father God, I am humbled this morning to be able to preach your word before your people. God, I recognize my own limitations. God, I recognize that I'm fallible. I recognize, Lord, that uh, there's nothing in and of myself, God, that grants me uh, the ability to speak these words, these words of life. But I also recognize that you're a gracious God and that you've called us to do so. So, Lord, I pray this morning that you would use these words and they would be yours. God, I pray that my words would be yours. And I pray that you would use them to to convince and convert sinners and to comfort and build up believers for your own glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can't do any old thing you just want to. No matter what your mama or your granny told you. I don't know about yours, but my mama and my granny used to always tell me, Patrick... Whatever you put your mind to, you can do it, son. You just got to work hard at it. Well, I'm five, ten, and three quarters. 
And when you're 5'10", you have to add the three quarters, okay? It's just, if you're 5'10", you understand. You're 5'11", essentially, right? Uh, but I'm 5'10 and three quarters, and something I've always wanted to be able to do is dunk a basketball. Never had I been able to dunk a basketball. Matter of fact, when I was in high school, I used to want to dunk so bad that I would work out my legs, and I would do calisthenics. I would do all these different things in order for me to be able to jump a little higher. And I could jump up, and I could touch the rim, but I was never going to be able to dunk the basketball. Uh, when I was preparing for this sermon this week, I got on the internet, and I typed in my search browser, what are some things that people cannot do, people can't do? And the first website I click on says this, it says, what uh, adults can't do that kids can, okay, and it's pretty comical. It had a list of about 21 things that you and I as adults, if you're an adult in here, most of us are, that we can't do that kids can. And again, they're comical. I only have five of them for us this morning. Uh, so here are five things that we cannot do. The first thing is this. When you come home from work after a long day, you cannot come home and build a couch fort. Okay? You should not come home and start building couch forts like your kids can, though that might be a lot of fun. Number two, and I love that kids do this, it's pretty hilarious, you cannot announce a successful bowel movement publicly. You know, if you're potty training children, and if you have children, you know this, you get excited for them when they're able to use the restroom, okay? And what will happen is this, for those of you who, most of you I'm sure know this, Little kids will use the restroom, and you get excited for them, and they'll come running out of the bathroom. Mommy, Mommy, Daddy, Daddy, I went potty, I went potty. Come look, come check it out. And you're like, no, I'm good, son, or I'm good, sweetie. Um, just go ahead and flush, and yes, high five, you did a great job. Adults, we can't do that, okay? We're at least not supposed to do that. It would be kind of weird if we were to do that. This is another one my kids have been doing uh, the past couple weeks. You cannot wear costumes publicly on days that are not Halloween, okay? People are going to judge you if you go to Walmart in a, in a little tiger costume on, in the middle of summer. Um, it, we are not supposed to do that. Number four, and maybe uh, I said earlier in the early service, and I'm going to say it again. Maybe this one's different in Polk County, number four. But number four is this. You can't pee in your backyard just because it's there as an adult. Kids, they, they'll use the restroom anywhere. As adults, we maybe should not do that. And number five uh, is this. It's eat at someone's house and tell them what you just ate was disgusting. Okay? My kids, they, they're not old enough to understand how to filter things yet. Okay? So they don't understand how to filter their words. And so... If you invite us over or if we come over and my kids don't have the most expansive palate that the world has ever known, okay? They're, they're kids. They like mac and cheese. They like chicken. It's about it. So if you try to expand their palate, they might tell you what you just gave them was disgusting. Please don't be offended by that. You heard it here first, okay? But here's the reality. Um, our doc doctrine this morning, the T, total depravity, is a doctrine that tells us there are just some things in life that you and I can't do. Our, do our doctrine this morning tells us that we are unable. We are unable to come to God without His amazing grace. 
We don't have the ability in and of ourselves to come before a holy God because we are fallen, sinful creatures. And yet, many, including those in the church, we minimize the effects that sin has had on us. And we allow this minimizing effect to rob us of the truth of God and of the grace that God has given us in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to go ahead and kind of break down how we're going to do this. We're going to look at this doctrine of total depravity. What we're going to do is we're going to define this doctrine. We're going to talk about what it means. I'm going to give you three tenets of total depravity. After defining it, we're going to defend it. I'm going to defend it, again, with the Word of God, because this is a biblical doctrine. And after defining it and defending it, we're going to talk about what difference it makes in our lives. So that's where we're going this morning. So let's start with defining it. The first tenet I want you to know about total depravity is this. That sin has corrupted us. And that there is not one person in this room... There is not one person in this world that is immune to sin's corruption. We are corrupted. To say it in South Georgia language, something ain't right here. And we know it even as a little kid. Like, we know this to be true. Um, We see things in our world like good things that happen. I remember reading several years ago a story about a guy named Evan Leedy. Evan met a guy who was walking to and from work. Now, this guy, this is in Detroit, Michigan, okay, so where there's brutal winters. Uh, This guy was walking 21 miles every single day to and from work. 21 miles every day. He did it for 10 years. And get this, he never missed one day of work. Never called out sick. Never did it. So Evan meets this man, and he's so moved by his story, so moved by this man's dedication to not only having a great work ethic, but his dedication to his family and trying to provide. And by the way, the reason why he walked is because his car had broken down, and they couldn't afford to pay uh, the car note on a new car. So Evan meets this guy, and he's so moved by it, he creates a GoFundMe account. And this GoFundMe account, the media catches wind of this GoFundMe account, and really people from Detroit and then really all around the world start pouring in money for this guy, and this guy's able to buy a car, and he's able to um, actually make a little extra money because of the generosity of people. So we see things like this in our world, we're like, wow, there's these vestiges of good. These, this looks really good, but on the other hand, just as Chris prayed just a couple of minutes ago, We look into the news, right? We turn on CNN, Fox, CSNBC, you name it, it doesn't matter. And we see the fallenness of our world. We see brokenness. We see murder. We see strife. We don't even really have to go to the news. All you got to have is Facebook. And you'll see Facebook arguments. You'll see Facebook um, different points of view, different things of that nature. There's something ain't right. And like I said earlier, even as a little kid, and I think even as a little kid, we all recognize that to be true. I remember uh, as a little kid, we had this, this ledge. I would jump up on the ledge, and then I would shimmy my way up onto the roof. Me and my best friend used to do this. It's probably not ideal to do this, so I'm not encouraging it. 
but we would shimmy up ourselves onto the roof, and we would get up there, and we'd lay down, we'd do this at night, we'd look up at the stars, and we would talk about all the things going on in our lives. And the common refrain of our time on that roof was this, there has got to be more to life than this. Even as a kid, we recognized this truth. Something wasn't right. We might not have called it sin, and we might not have known a whole lot of things at that time, but the reality is that sin has corrupted us, and there is not one person immune from sin. The second tenet is this, that sin not only has corrupted us, it has corrupted every single part of us. We are, as the T says, totally depraved. Now, don't get total depravity confused with utter depravity, okay? Because there's a difference. Total depravity means that sin has affected every single thing about us. Spiritually, physically, emotionally, any other elise there are, sin has affected it, okay? Utter depravity would say we are as bad as we can be. And that's not true, okay? There are still vestiges of good in us. And we just spoke about one earlier. God has still created us. Though marred as it may be, we were still created in the image and likeness of God. God still gives us His common grace. God gives us His law, which one of the, the, the things that the law does is it restrains sin, as I mentioned before in a previous sermon. So we're not as bad as we can be, but every single part of us has fallen. Um, Everything in us, physically, mentally, and emotionally, everything about our makeup is not untouched by sin. Our motives themselves are never entirely pure. Uh, Jerry Bridges, in the book, The Pursuit of Holiness, says it this way, and I really love this. He says, even our tears of repentance, and, and imagine the imagery here, it's when you're broken, Right? Even your tears of repentance, when you recognize there's something in your eye, even when you're begging God for something more, even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Because sin has affected us, and it's affected every part of us. And nothing we do is ever totally pure. The last tenet this morning for us is this. So not only has sin corrupted us and no one's immune, not only has it affected every single part of our being, but we are spiritually dead. We have no ability to come before a holy God. Sin killed us. Just like Lazarus was dead and had no ability, so we spiritually have no ability to come to God. We arrive in this world spiritually D-O-A. We are dead on arrival. As cute as your kids are and as cute as my kids are, they all arrive in this world the same way. Spiritually dead. That's the truth of the scriptures. I don't know if you've seen the movie The Sixth Sense, but the popular line from that movie is this, I see dead people. And in reality outside of the saving work of Jesus Christ and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in someone's life, we're dead. Outside of that. And so as we move from our way from in here to out of these doors, 
we can, in some ways, we see people who are spiritually dead. Now, uh, I'm going to do a, a, a little, not a timeout, but a little hiatus here. I want to explain something. Um, we have our Wednesday night prayer meetings, and by the way, they're fun. I love our Wednesday night prayer meetings. As the youth, what we've been doing is we've been going upstairs as the youth, and we've been talking about, uh, talking about God. But what I've done is I've used it as more of a discipleship time, a discipleship tool. So we go up there. I've got them divided into groups, and they divided themselves into a guy's group and a girl's group. I didn't do that. They did it themselves. Uh, I didn't tell them to sit guys and girls, but they did, chose to sit that way. So I got them in two different groups, and, and I give them some work to do. And then we come together at the end and talk about it. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. I feel like it's been sanctifying for myself, and it's been sanctifying for our students. Um, but one of the fun things about Wednesday night to, for me is this. After we finish, and after we're done with that, we go all outside. So uh, Pastor Tanner and them, their side will dismiss, we'll dismiss, and we all go outside. And there's usually this kind of hangout time, if you will, outside. Whereas this is just, it's really just this intergenerational ministry, okay? So you have uh, young children running around, and we have senior saints, and we have all in between. And we're all just out there doing silly things most of the time handstands and things of that nature and and talking last week we were arm wrestling on a car you know silly things like that well a couple weeks ago we were on the playground and the Stricklands were on the playground all thousand of them uh we were out in the playground and uh doing the monkey bars and I don't remember exactly what was said or how it came up but someone said something about a color and I said oh interesting fact I'm actually colorblind and they said really my dad is colorblind, too. I said, oh, okay. And so then usually when you tell someone you're colorblind, it usually turns into, uh, okay, so what can you not see? And I don't really know what I can't see. Um, I know I'm red-green colorblind. Uh, but I, I pull out my phone. I was like, how do you know you're colorblind? I mean, if you look at the carpet, what color is it? Is it red? Yes, it looks red to me. So how do you know? I said, well, here, let me show you. I'll pull out my phone, and there's these colorblind tests. And these colorblind tests, I don't know if you've ever seen one. They're basically a circle, and inside the circle, there's a bunch of dots, okay? The dots are different colors. And in those dots, it makes a number or a shape. Uh, it makes something, and you're supposed to be able to see it. So I pull it out, and we're looking at it, and they're like, what do you see? I'm like, I see a bunch of dots. That's literally what I see. They're like, really, you can't see that number seven? Look, right there, you don't see it, and they'll draw it out for me. I'm like, no. You can draw it out. You can show me the colors. You can do all of that. The reality is I have no ability to see what you see. And uh, Mr. Chris Strickland back there is colorblind as well. So we were both, at the same time, we can't see it. Look, no matter how many ways you show it to us, no matter whatever it is, we can't see it. Spiritually... We are unable. I am unable to see color um, to a certain degree. But spiritually, we are unable. We are unable to come to God. So those are the three tenets. We are spirit, sin has corrupted us. No one is immune. We have been corrupted in every part and that we are spiritually dead. Now let me defend it. All right. First, spirit, uh, excuse me. First sin has corrupted us and there is no one immune. 
We're going to flip back to the book of Genesis, and I'm going to spit off several different passages. So if you want my notes, I'll be happy to send these notes to you when I'm done with all these scriptures in them. But in the first book of Genesis, Genesis 1, chapter 1, excuse me, Genesis chapter 1, we have the creation of man, right? So in six days, God creates the earth and everything in it, and on the seventh day, he rests. In Genesis 2, that's kind of the 40,000-foot view of creation. In Genesis 2, it kind of zooms in, and we see the creation of man. In Genesis 2, God gives Adam and Eve the, what's known as the cultural mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. You may eat of all of these trees, only not of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then you get to Genesis 3, and this is where sin enters the world. In Genesis 3, verse 6, it says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food... And that it was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. So here in Genesis 3.6. Adam and Eve break the commandment of God. Not to eat of the only thing that God had commanded them not to. And this is where sin enters the world. This is where things aren't right anymore. First uh, Corinthians fifteen twenty two says it this way. Paul says it this way. For in Adam all died. Not some. For in Adam we all died. Every single person. There's no one immune to it. We didn't get sick. We didn't become spiritually weak. We died. In Adam, every single one of us. The Westminster Shorter, uh, Shorter Catechism, question number 16, says it this way. Did all mankind fall in Adam's transgression? Question, that was the question. Answer. The covenant being made with Adam, and not only for himself, but for his prosperity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation sinned in him and fell with him in the, his first transgression. Sin has corrupted uh, us, and we all fell. There was no one immune in Adam. But has sin corrupted every part of us? Well, in Romans 3, as we see in the text that we read, we see as far as Righteousness, understanding, ability to seek God, our morals, everything has been affected. Read with me again, Genesis, or excuse me, Romans 3, starting in verse 10. As it is written, concerning righteousness, no, none is righteous, no, not one. Concerning understanding, no one understands. Concerning those having the ability to seek God, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. As far as morality... No one does good. Not even one. You know, it took three chapters for sin to enter the world. Three chapters later in Genesis 6, we have this. Genesis 6, 5, it says this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thought of his heart was only evil 
continually. When we compare ourselves to a holy God, when we see sin has come into our lives, and when we compare ourselves to a holy God, we see that it has affected every single part of us. There is not one part of us that can be said righteous. That part is unfallen. That part of you is untouched by sin. There is not one part of us, according to God's word. And not only that, as I mentioned earlier, we are spiritually dead. Now, uh, in Genesis 2, uh, this is before the fall of Genesis 3. In Genesis 2, God gives us this command, right? He tells Adam and Eve, he tells them, you can eat of any tree you want to, right? We all know the story. You can eat of any tree, only of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat. And then he's going to give a promise, okay? This is Genesis 2, 16 and 17. I'm going to read it for you. It says this, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may not eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Then he says this, For in the day, for in that day, excuse me, that you eat of it, you will, or you shall surely die. The promise of Genesis 2, 16 and 17 was death. The day that they ate was the day they died. It was the day that they died spiritually. Not physically, though death will come to all of us physically at some point. In that day, they died. And you know, they just, in their newfound depravity, right? In their newfound depravity, what is the first thing they do? Their eyes are opened. They recognize the fact that they're naked. They are ashamed of their nakedness. They hide themselves. And then as God does to come and commune with them in the cool of the day, what do they do in their newfound depravity? They were dead. They died. They were running from God. They hid themselves. Jesus says it like this in John 6.44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Again, why? Because you are dead. And like Lazarus was dead and had no ability to raise himself, he needed grace. And this morning, this doctrine is a doctrine that communicates to us our fallen nature, and it communicates the same thing, that we need grace. We need grace. Now, Romans 1, the middle of Romans 1 to the middle of Romans 3 is really Paul really kind of hammering out our sin. Sin nature, how, how it's affected us, our fallen nature. And then we get to the middle of Romans 3 and he says this, he says, but now, this is verse 21, Romans 3 verse 21, he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. So here's what Paul is doing. I'm going to give it to you in an illustration real quick. Uh, imagine a jeweler showing you a diamond, okay? If you've been married or if you haven't been married, listen up. Because when a jeweler shows you a diamond, what they don't do is put it on a piece of glass, okay? Because if you put a diamond on a piece of glass, it really doesn't bring out the brilliance of that diamond. What a jeweler will do is they'll lay a diamond against something really dark, a, a piece of velvet, and they'll put it under a microscope so you can appreciate 
the beauty of a diamond. What Paul is doing here in Romans 1 through 3 is allowing the diamond, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, to shine forth by showing us against the backdrop of our sin. So what difference does this make? What difference does it make when we're dead in our sins? We were dead in our trespasses. When we had no ability in ourselves, but God. Ephesians 2, 4 says this. But God, being rich in mercy, though you were dead, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace, if you are in Jesus, you have been saved by grace. The Bible calls us hostile, calls us enemies of God. The book of Hosea says that we were prostituting ourselves to other gods. This is who we are by nature. So how does it affect us? How does this hard pill for so many to swallow, how does this change us? What difference does it make? Well, what difference does it make in parenting? You know, I have two little kids that were here earlier. And it reminds me of this truth. That I'm not just looking for behavioral change in my kids. I'm looking to go after their hearts. Right? It, it, behavioral change might make me look good in front of people. But the problem with my kids is not a, necessarily a problem with just their behavior. My pro, the problem is that my kids are dead and that they need Jesus to give them life. And so here's what I do. When my kids sin, guess what I call it? I call it sin. I said, I'll, I'll tell my daughter or my son, son or daughter, you messed up. And what you did hurt God. It hurt daddy, it hurt mommy, but more than anything, it hurt God. And do you want to know why that you sinned? It's because you need a new heart. And, and I'll remind them, in the same way Jesus tells Nicodemus, the only way to be truly alive is to be reborn. I'll tell my kids, the only way you can that you can be truly alive, son or daughter. The, o- the only thing that you can do is to trust God. As a matter of fact, as parents, what we do is we give our kids, and, and maybe you know, in this progressive world this isn't the best thing to say, but we discipline our kids. Okay, The reason why we discipline our kids is this, is because we tell them, like, Madeline, Oliver, you're going to get in trouble here, and there's going to be consequences to your action. But I want you to know, the reason why mommy and daddy gives you these consequences, it's not because we just want to change your behavior. It's because we love you so much. And because we want you to know that our sin has consequences. Not only in this life, but in the life to come. And it's only by putting our hope and trust in Jesus Christ that those consequences have been paid for on the cross. And so we remind our kids of that, and we try to get to their heart and not just their behavior, because we know that the problem is a problem with the heart. And our doctrine reminds us of that this morning. It changes the way we think about evangelism. As we go out of here, 
and we see people walking, smiling, seeming to have a good time, we know that Jesus says to the Pharisees, and this is true of so many people, you are whitewashed tombs. What does he mean by that? You might look real pretty on the outside, but unless Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you're full of dead man's bones. You're dead. And so it should affect, as we see the grace that has been given to us, and as we are washed in that grace, and as we are just absolutely blown away at what God has accomplished for us, that should move us. And then we recognize this, what it says in Romans 1, 16 and 17, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why am I not ashamed of the gospel? Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to everyone. Paul, God, he, I'm not calling Paul God here. I'm saying Paul or God, excuse me. Uh, he lays out this doctrine of total depravity, this doctrine of sin, so that we can see the beauty that has been given to us and so that it would drive us towards our neighbors. It would drive us towards that grace in wanting to be faithful stewards, heralds of the diamond that is the grace of God. You want to know how, if God's calling you to be, uh, to share the gospel, you want to know how to know that, if God's calling you? You can reach down, put your hand right here, and if you feel it pulsing, God's called you. He's called every single one of us to be a herald, and it is our job, but it is also our delight. Why would we not share this treasure with the world? I can give you no answer to that. The last thing I have for us is it affects the way we deal with conflict. Because we recognize this to be true, that our hearts by nature are desperately wicked. We, we need help, right? Um, we should be those who are quick to repent in conflict, right? We should be those who recognize, you know what? The book of Proverbs says, there's a way that seems right to a man that ultimately leads to death. As I looked at the scriptures, I see that my heart can be desperately wicked, as it says in the book of Jeremiah. Therefore, I'm going to start with that premise in conflict. And rather than coming in defensiveness, I'm going to back up and say, okay, Lord, what are you showing me here? Is this true? God, am, am I, whatever is being brought to me or whatever is causing the conflict, where is my sin the problem? And so we start with ourselves and we start with repentance and conflict. And then we should be those who are so quick to forgive one another. Because it, as you recognize the amount that you've been forgiven, what can other people do? I mean, has anybody out you? Has anybody, the amount of sin that you've sinned against God... Has anybody ever sinned against you that amount? The answer is no. Our sin, God has been so gracious to forgive us. Every thought, every word, every deed, if you were in Jesus Christ, God forgives you. How quick should we be to be loving and forgiving and building up of one another? Brothers and sisters, this glorious doctrine of total depravity 
is going to be built upon every single week as we look at the rest of these uh, letters. But this doctrine starts by showing us the backdrop by which God is going to show us the diamond that is His Son. He's going to show you while you were hostile and sinners, I died for you. I gave my life for you. And you can see this beauty in the cross and see what it cost Jesus. So a right understanding of our sin should drive us to the cross and make us beggars of grace. And then as we do that, it should floor us because of the amazing grace been given to us. Let's pray. Father, uh, I thank you. There are many in this world who run from this doctrine, and yet this doctrine shines a spotlight on you so clear that I don't know why anybody would run. So I thank you, God, that, w- that you did what I absolutely couldn't. God, I thank you, and, and I pray for your forgiveness, and I pray that you'd forgive us as a church or anywhere in which we have Um, diluted or we have minimized the effects of our sin in our life God help us to be those who who so know your word and so see ourselves for who we really are and so see the gospel as the glorious truth that it is that it would move in us through us and out of us to the rest of this world we pray in Jesus name amen if you would stand with me please and let's respond with a hymn of response when I survey the one